invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the 1 Samuel chapter 1 passage we read at the beginning. When I think of painful experiences, my mind turns to Job in the Bible. And to summarize his experience of pain, he coined a phrase, the Lord gives, that would be God's yes. And he had God's superabundant yes in so many ways in his life. But he also says a little conjunction that's hard for us to grasp sometimes and experience, and the Lord takes away. And for Job, he had to learn to deal with God's yes and his no, he takes away. In reverse of that uh, is Hannah that we're looking at today. Hannah for most of her married life, was given up front first. God said no to her. Um, And in her life, as we find her in this passage, she's still waiting for the yes. Uh, Not sure if it's going to come in her life. And she knows all about, as Job would say, how the Lord takes away. She knows all about no, because she's been living with it. But she hasn't really found out if there's more than that. If If there's a yes in her life, she's looking for God to put in the conjunction and because she knows all about how he takes away, but and he gives. He says no, but does he ever say yes? Have you ever felt like that in your life that you've had more than your fair share of God telling you no? No to marriage and you're still single. No to good health because there's lots of times in your life for long periods of time that you have health issues that don't seem to go away. When God says no to financial uh, abundance and you are really struggling because a lot of your life you've spent on E economically, meaning empty. It's hard to pay the bills, not sure, in fact, sometimes how you're going to make it through the month. When God says no to the promotion at the job that you're at after all the years you've been there, someone else seems to get promoted, but you seemingly are overlooked and unnoticed. When God says no to peace and joy and happiness, just some of it in your family or in your marriage and with your friends or in a relationship. And it's hard to grasp that kind of pain. You go to church, you try to be godly, You serve the Lord and you think, or at least you hope, that there is a big yes around the corner. And somehow, the corner really never comes. It just always seems to be out and beyond your reach. That's exactly what Hannah experienced. It wasn't that there was nothing positive in her life. She had a husband who loved her. The Bible says that when he gave out portions, he gave her a double portion because he loved her. He was an orthodox person. He believed in God. He followed Torah. And he took care of her. But for Hannah, it wasn't long into their marriage that a problem became what would be the center of her life. And that's when God told her no. And you read the text, it's not just any no that he told her. It's the one no that you never wanted to have from God as a woman in her time and in her day and in her culture. It was the worst kind of no that she could ever receive from God. 
And that no was that she was barren, that she faced the no of infertility. Two times in our text, if you read them in verses 5 and 6, the Bible repeats this fact because it's the main issue, that the Lord had closed her womb. You see, I'm sure that at first she was okay with it. She was handling it well. And like you often do when pain comes into your life at first as a Christian. Um, She remembered that she's not the only one who's ever had trouble having children. I mean, she looked back into the tales and the stories of Genesis and uh, about how the patriarchs' wives, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, they were all barren. They all could not have children until God did something in their lives in fact, Genesis 29, 31 and Genesis 30 and verse 22, eventually it says God opened their womb and God looked on them because they were unloved or because they were being made fun of or whatever the case might be. And God did something about it and they just had to wait on God. And so I'm sure at first Hannah encouraged herself from the examples of real life women of faith that had come before her and not just in the past. But even more recently in present history, because Hannah grew up under the judge at the time was Samson. And you know that Samson's existence and all that he did was only because God took a barren woman, Manoah, his dad's wife, his wife, and she was barren and couldn't have children. And the angel visited her and said she was going to have a son. And the judge that she grew up under, Samson, he was only there because God opened her womb. And so even in her own time period, God has provided an example of how he closes a womb and opens it for his purposes. And I'm sure she would have taken great encouragement and consolation in that. But time passes And in her pain, nothing changes. God is still telling her, Sarah, yes, Rebecca, Rachel, yes, Manoah's wife, yes. But for some strange reason, Hannah gets a no. Now, because of that, during that time period, Elkanah makes a choice and takes a second wife. And her name is Peninnah. And the word Peninnah in Hebrew is the word prolific. And she is that. You can read the first two verses, and it makes it pretty obvious and clear. He had two wives, Hannah, which mean, her name means favored one, and the name of the other, Peninnah, who's prolific. And she has children. And, she, and, and we're down in verse two later, she had sons and daughters, plural. So she has children, and Hannah has no children. Do you see the stark contrast? See, year by year, it says, once in verse 3, once in verse 7. Year after year, Peninnah has another child. Hannah doesn't have any children. Another one, another son, another daughter, nothing. Abundance, nothing. Year after year after year. It seems like every year, nine months of it's filled up with this other woman in his life having a child. And I never get pregnant. For Hannah, her condition contradicted her name. And I'm sure by, after all these years, in her mind, she's asking the question, how can I be the favored one and be barren? How is it possible? Have you ever had that in your life, that the pain that you're experiencing contradicts what you think of God and maybe even what you think the Scripture teaches? So you might say, well, Pastor Walker... I'm trying to understand. I mean, I know it's not a good thing 
not to be able to have children, but why was this so radically important to her? Let me give you some reasons. And I want you not just so you can understand mentally, but I want you to feel the pain that she faces. Well, socially, it was a cultural expectation for women to have lots of babies, and particularly boy babies. And here's why. Because socially, let me tell you this, every day you'd go to the market and you'd go to get food because they didn't have refrigerators and they didn't just go to the store once a week like we do. They went every day to the open market and they would take their children with them and all the women would talk to one another, their children, oh, so-and-so's growing and oh, oh, how cute they are and wow, look at that. And now they're walking and, and they had all the tell, they tell all the stories but not Hannah. Hannah goes to market with everybody else and she doesn't bring her children because she doesn't have any. And when it's, she hears all the stories of what women are doing in their families and with their children and what they're doing together and she has no stories to tell. She just quietly listens. And every time she hears a story about children, it reminds her just how much she doesn't fit in. It reminds her about how, unlike everybody else, she's really not accepted. Um, in fact, she knows that people, when they look at her, think this. There's something wrong with her. Socially, she doesn't fit in. Financially, the reason why they were encouraged to have children, it's pretty obvious in, in a culture like theirs. More children, more help. More help to work in the field. More help to run the family business in the shop. More workers, you make more money, your family does better. And on top of it, as you get older, your child inherits your business or, their, or the land that you have, and they provide security for you. When you can't work anymore, they can, and they take care. Families didn't go their separate ways like they do in America in pursuit of jobs at other places. Everybody stayed in the same place. And if you had a son, he took up your dad's, his dad's job and his trade and it was a way for you to feel secure financially that someone would be there to take care of you. Politically, they needed boys because there are always uh, nations around them that would want to attack them and overcome them and defeat them and they would become their slaves. So you have to have an army, so you have to fill it with boys. And it was crucial for the nation. Emotionally, well, you can imagine, can't you? I mean, you just want your kids to run up and grab your knees and give you hugs and kisses and you want to, you know... Put them to bed at night and tell them stories and tell them the Bible and see their lives change and have them grow up. Just all the joys of parenting. She never had that. She, didn't, she wasn't going to continue her husband's name. None of those things. Spiritually, can I tell you most of all, this is the one that probably hurt. Because Deuteronomy 28 verses 15 and following list out when God's people Israel are disobedient to Torah Here's what they can expect, and they can expect this, that God will curse them. Let me read a curse in the middle of that section to you. Deuteronomy 28, 18. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb. You see, if you are a disobedient Israelite, and, and the Israelites as a whole were disobedient, one of the things that would mark off and publicly let everybody know how disobedient you as a people were being is when your women stopped being able to have children. Because when you don't have children, you can't have boys, and you can't protect your nation, and things go downhill, and the economy goes downhill. If you can't have children, it's a curse from God. And Hannah, even though she's in this little backwater town, in the hill country, 
She's in this little village where everybody knows everything about everyone. And everybody knows this. This is what they, Mark's Hannah, she can't have children. And so you know what everybody thinks when they see her and she walks down the street? Wow, she must be doing something wrong. She must be living disobedient. There must be some really grievous sin in her life because God is cursing her. But on the other hand, everyone looks at her rival, Peninnah, right? And thinks, oh, wow, what a virtuous, godly woman, even though behind the scenes she's horrible to Hannah. Everyone must think she's really righteous and godly. You know why? Look how God's blessed her. Look at all the children. She has boys and girls, and she has a bunch of them. Oh, how great she must be in her relationship with God. And now you know, don't you? You know why Rachel said in Genesis 30 and verse 1, give me children or I shall die. That's how strong they felt about as a woman in that day having children. Now you know why the Bible says in verse 7, Hannah wept and she wouldn't eat. It was disturbing everything in her life. Now you know why it says in verse 13 that Hannah was deeply distressed and that she wept bitterly when she was in the tabernacle. It was wrecking her in every way possible. The fact that God had said no to her life was destroying everything that she held dear. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel that kind of pain. Not not physical pain. Physically, you're all right. But emotionally, relationally, spiritually, there's a deep-seated pain. A pain that happened because you lost someone that you loved. A deep distress of a marriage that is failing or has failed already. The emotional anguish of watching people who are not really godly but seem to get God's superabundant yes, while you, when you try to be committed to God, all you get is God's superabundant no. See, that's what was going on. That's the kind of pain that Hannah experienced. And may I tell you, and please hear me this morning, what you do in response to your pain may determine the entire trajectory of the rest of your life. That's not an overstatement. Let me say it again. What you do in response to your pain may determine the entire trajectory of the rest of your life. Case in point, Joseph. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, and he is anguished. He can't believe that his brothers, his own brothers, would sell him into slavery. And you know what it resulted in? 13 years of his life being wasted, quote-unquote. He was a slave to Potiphar. He was in prison and has a criminal record for a crime that he didn't do. He was forgotten for years He never saw his mother alive ever again. He never saw her face. She died before he was released. He had pain. But how Joseph responded in his pain made all the difference in the world. Ruth and Naomi are together and they've experienced the pain because for Ruth it's the loss of her husband. For Naomi it's the loss of both of her boys. They're in Moab, and they decided to go back. They respond to their pain by going back to Israel and seeking to return God. It makes all the difference in the world. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 119 and how he says we should respond to our afflictions and pains. 
Psalm 119.92, unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. God, if it wasn't for your word telling me how to respond, I would have died in this pain. Psalm 119.107, I am afflicted very much. God, in other words, I'm overwhelmed with this pain and affliction. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Psalm 119, 153, consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. See, that, that's where Hannah was trying to get. She was trying to get back to responding to all of her pain in a way that made God the center of her life. So let me ask you, where do you go? Where do you turn in your pain and affliction? Where do you go to find peace in your pain? Hebrew scholar Robert Alter wrote a book, and it's called The Art of Biblical Narrative. And in it, as he comments on this passage, he says a pretty insightful thing. He says there are two voices in Hannah's life when she's experiencing pain. And the question that the story of Hannah in this portion raises is this, who will she listen to? And that's the question that you and I have to ask today. Because in our pain and in our problems, in our afflictions, there are people who are speaking into them. And the question is just this. Who are you listening to in your pain? For her, there's two voices in the text and two only. One is Peninnah and one of them is Elkanah, her husband. And see... The first voice is Peninnah, and I call her voice the voice of cultural expectation, cultural pressures. And the Bible says in chapter 1, look at it in verse 6, that she is Hannah's rival. Um, And here's what she does. It's a competition. Having children, what she is best at as being prolific, and Hannah cannot do it all, and she rubs her face in it all the time. And the Bible describes it in these terms, provoke her grievously. And irritate her. I mean, this isn't just a kind of a little verbal barb once in a while. This is every time you get the chance to rub it in that I have children and you don't. She does. She takes full advantage of it, even at times when they're going to church. Can you believe it? Dale Davis, the commentator, has imagined a possible conversation about the savage mockery that Penina would have used to irritate Hannah. And this is what he writes. Now, do all you children have your, own, your food? Dear me, there are so many of you, it's hard to keep track. Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What did you say, dear? Could you say that again? I said, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Miss Hannah, oh yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Mommy, doesn't she want to have any children? Oh yes, she wants children very, very much, dear. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? I mean, don't you wish you had children too, like me? Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly he does, but Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him all the time. She can't have kids, Mommy? Well, I don't know. Maybe she can't, but it seems like she can't have them right now. Why? Why can't she have children, Mommy? Because God won't let her. Does God not like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? See, that sort of conversation, imagine facing that 
all the time. The pressure of cultural expectations was great on Hannah because here's what it says. You're a woman in Jewish culture and you should have children and this is what's expected of you. And if you don't measure up, then you are nothing. Is that not true in our day for women? Fast forward to the 21st century. Here's what culture says to young teenage girls and adult women in our culture. You have to be thin. You have to be sexy, beautiful, smart, self-sufficient, equal to men. The perfect wife and spouse, work a job, come home and do all the things. And it's possible that in your pain that you think that you can achieve and gain all the happiness and pleasure and peace that you're looking for in life. If you could just meet all the demands that culture places. If you could just be like that woman on the magazine cover. See? But it isn't what you think it is. And it certainly doesn't fulfill like they promise. And that's why we hear constant stories on the rise of young ladies today cutting themselves, starving themselves, throwing up when they eat food so they can maintain their weight, prostituting themselves to to every guy that comes along to prove that they're one of those kind of women. And even at times, killing themselves. It's the pain that people experience when they try to measure up and they cannot. When the culture expects them to be a certain way and they just don't measure up, it brings pain. And by the way, we'd be foolish to think that the cultural expectations are only for women. There are men as well. There are expectations for men and they are just as real. And if you try to build your life around those expectations and meeting them, you will never find the joy and happiness that you're looking for. See, that was the first voice that was speaking into Hannah's life, that if you could just do this, if you could just live out the right identity of having children, if you could be like me, you'd have everything you ever wanted. But there's another voice speaking into her pain, and that's her husband, Elkanah. The Bible says in verse 8, here's what he says to her, typical man. Why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? He doesn't understand it. You know why? She's got him. (laughs) What could go wrong, right, guys? I I know you can't have children, but look, you've got me. And and then he asks, am I not more to you than ten sons? I'm ten times better than what you're missing, so what's the problem? You know what he should have said? He should have said this to her. You are worth more to me than ten sons. That's what he should have said. But that's not what he said. And you know what? It's not that he doesn't love her. It's not that he doesn't care about her because he gave her a double portion. In fact, if they had a conversation about it and, it was, and, and, and they let us have more of the words that he would have said to her, he's probably saying to this, he goes, you know the only reason I married her is because she has children. And, and you know what? She's in my life and she gives me children, but you're my true love. As if that somehow is going to make her feel better. But you know what? In your pain, can I tell you this? There'll be people that you're friends with, people that you go to work, you rub shoulders with, and have a relationship. You know what? They're very nice people. They're people who have good intentions. And they're well-meaning, but they do not share God's wisdom. And if you listen to them, even people that you're close to, 
and people that love you. See, you can't depend on meeting cultural expectations to be satisfied. And you cannot depend, can I say this, even on the love of someone that's close to you and the care that they, you cannot ultimately find happiness and satisfaction even in that. And if you try to build your life on those foundations, you are always, listen to me, eventually, always you are going to be grievously disappointed And those are only two of the voices. There are so many more voices we could mention this morning. And the question rises for us, whose voice are you listening to? In your pain, in your struggle, have you figured out yet, have you figured this out, that you can try to listen to all the voices out there and you're still going to be empty if they're not God's? Sophia Loren, an actress that was famous a generation ago, once said in an interview that she had everything and she was one of the few people who married a guy that she stayed with in Hollywood for a long time and she said it was her dream husband. She had awards, she was married, she had what she would say, everything. But this is what she said in the interview. But in my life, there's an emptiness that is impossible to fill. Boris Becker, who I watched play professional tennis growing up, He was a tennis champion, and he says this, I have won Wimbledon twice, and once I was the youngest player ever in history to win it. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It was the same old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide, he said. They have everything, yet they were so unhappy. He says, it was me, and I had no inner peace. The Hebrew scholar I mentioned earlier, Robert Adler, said something else about this text. He said, you know what's significant in the narrative is that Hannah has two voices speaking into her pain, but the Bible records that she does not respond to either one of them. She doesn't say any words back, and he finds that to be intriguing. In fact, he said that she chose not to listen to either one of them. For Robert Alter, he says verse 9 is the turning point. And here's what it reads. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, it says this, Hannah rose. Now he says to the average person, you might think that's not a big deal. If you're going to go to the temple, of course you've got to stand up. You've got to stand up to go walk anywhere. But he sees it as a Hebrew scholar. He says, no, it's a Hebrew idiom. And it has more meaning to the fact that she just got up from where she was. And then he says this, in English, if you were trying as a foreigner outside of America to learn American English, and you were reading a book, trying to understand what it meant, and you came to a phrase, and she put her foot down. He says, you might think it was just a common expression to say she took another step when she put her foot down, but you'd be missing it because it's an idiom, he says. It's an idiom that means that she finally decided and got uh, up enough muster, so to speak, to say no. She put her foot down. This isn't happening anymore. See, you would miss it if you just took it at face value. And for Robert Alter, he says, this is the deciding point of her life. It's the turning point. She says she stood up. She's going to go to the temple. And you know what she's going to do? She's not going to listen to Peninnah anymore, although she has for years. She's not going to listen even to her husband, who thinks that he's the answer to her problems, and she should turn to him 
You know what? She stands up and she goes to the temple. Why? Because she's making this statement that I don't listen to culture and I'm not even finding it in my husband. Here's my choice. In my pain, I turn to God. See, that's what it means when she stood up and she went to the temple. And you know how she expressed the fact that she was turning to God and that would be his voice that she listened to? Here's what the Bible says. She prayed. She prayed. Get this. Is this ironic? She turns to the God to trust him, the very one who closed her womb to begin with. I mean, she's come full circle, hasn't she? I mean, she really had turned to other voices or was tempted to listen to other voices, but she came back to the realization that the God who closed her womb was the God she needed to turn to. And maybe that's why God brought you here this morning. Maybe he says, listen, I know that things are going on in your life and I know you feel the pain and you're tempted to turn and listen to all kinds of other explanations and answers to your problem. But here's what you need to do. And here's why I brought you here this morning. You need to turn to me. And Hannah does, and she prays about it. Let me close with two things this morning about her prayer, just two simple things I think will help. In her prayer, Hannah recognizes two important things in her life to be able to help her work through her pain. You ready? First is this, Hannah recognizes who God is. Verse 10, and, and this is her prayer, verses 10 and 11. The Bible says, She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said this, verse 11, O Lord of hosts. It's the same title used for God in this chapter in verse 3. And it was the God of the angelic armies. That God is the one who is the leader of all the hosts of heaven, the angels. And the, it's a military term. And basically what she starts her prayer was is this. God, you're powerful. Now listen, she, prayer is an admission that you are powerless. And so she comes to the temple. She's made her choice. I'm not listening to Peninnah. I'm not listening to my husband. You know who I'm listening to? God. And here's the first thing she recognizes about God. God, you have power. Now you haven't shown it in my life. Other than the fact that you closed my womb. It's been a big no up until now, but you're the only one, God, that I can turn to who could ever give me the yes that I'm looking for. You're the only one. God, you are the one who controls the armies of heaven, and you have have that kind of power. Now listen, listen, listen. In 1 and 2 Samuel, these two books of the Bible are mainly about two men, and these are two men of great power because they are the kings of Israel, Saul and David, and they each have 40-year reigns, and the whole story is about the rise and fall of these two kings and the battles against the Philistines and all the exploits that they do and the national notoriety they get for them. But you know how 1 and 2 Samuel starts? It doesn't start with the biography of Saul It doesn't start with David. It talks about a woman that nobody knows her name in a backwater little town in the hill country near Jerusalem who can't have a child. And you know what she recognizes about God? That God is powerful, not just for the kings of Israel, not just so that he can wipe out the Philistines and defeat his enemies. You know what God's power is? It's not just great. It's not only transcendent. It is personal. And God doesn't just care about kings and priests. He cares about 
women who are barren and have lost hope. And you might say, see, God's powerful, Pastor Walker. Yeah, but I, I'm no missionary. I'm not a pastor. I'm not some big name. Does God really know about my, does he really even care about me? And the words from Hannah would be, absolutely, he does. He cares and knows in detail about your pain. He knows what you face. He knows how you struggle with him saying no to you about that issue for that long. He knows all about it. He's not just concerned about big-name preachers or people that you know are in the limelight. No, he cares about you right back here in little Hamilton in the middle of our country. See, he cares about what's going on in your life. And, and that's what you need to get into your mind and in your heart when you're facing pain is that you can turn to God. You know why? Because he has the power to handle any problem you're facing, but not just that he has the power, but he has the power and he knows what you're going through personally. That's the kind of God that he is. But secondly, not only does Hannah recognize who God is, but in so doing, listen to this, Hannah recognizes who she is. Three times in her prayer, in verses 10 and 11, here's what she calls herself, your servant. See it? Underline it in the text. Three times, your servant, your servant, your servant. Notice she did not pray and demand her rights. God, you should do this for me. No, no, you don't do that when you're a servant. See? She did not pray to God and say, God, hey, here's what you need to do. God, you need to go over and teach Penina a lesson. She didn't even mention Penina in her prayers because she wasn't after revenge. She doesn't get angry at God and say, God, it's about time you do something, don't you think? No, because you know why she doesn't say any of those things? Because that's not what a servant says. That's not someone who's humbled themselves and submitted themselves under the authority of God. She doesn't approach God as if he's some sort of God obliged to do her will. In fact, some people have viewed Hannah's prayer as some sort of bargain, this new angle that she has to get her God to give her a child finally after all these years. Can I tell you, she doesn't make a bargain. The scripture is clear in verse 11. She makes a vow. Her prayer is about her commitment to God in the middle of her pain. And here's what her words of her prayer say. If you give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch, no razor shall touch his head. You know what she's saying, right? She's saying, I'm going to make my son a Nazarite. There are only three prominent Nazarites in Scripture. Samson, Samuel, who would be Hannah's child, and John the baptizer. Now, if you want to read what a Nazarite was all about, you can read Numbers chapter 6 for yourself. There were a number of things that marked your life if you were a Nazarite and were committed to God. Every, every single child out of the womb, was separated unto God, but Nazarites were special. They were more committed than anybody else, and and you could know that someone was a Nazarite if they never cut their hair and they never drank alcohol. And that's why she says, God, no razor on his head. You know why? Because I'm going to dedicate him. Now, now you might say, well, that's great. I'm going to let my son go into ministry, God, if you give me a, a baby after all this time. That's not what she's saying. You know what she's really saying? Everything that she ever wanted in having a child, she is willing to give up if God will answer her prayer. How do I know that? Because you know what a Nazarite is? It's a voluntary Levite. A Nazarite was someone who lived near the tabernacle like Samuel did, served there. He didn't live at home. 
He didn't come home. So at the age of three or four or whatever, she weaned him and she brought him to the temple. He's there for the rest of his life. So you know what she's not? She's not getting the story socially. After he's three or four, she's not going to tell stories of his exploits in junior high and high school. She's not going to tell everybody, look at my son, how great in sports he is. She's never going to tell those stories because she's giving them back to the Lord. Financially, he's not going to be there to take over his dad's business. He's not going to be the one, when she's too old to work, to provide financial security. He's not going to be there for her because he's going to be serving the Lord. She's not going to know the joys of parenting. And when he's five or six and, and, and does certain things for the first time, she won't be the one experiencing them. Someone else will. So on every possible level, socially, financially, emotionally, she's giving it all away. And here's what I think she's saying in her prayer. Hear me, because I hope it's what you can say today. She's basically saying this, for all these years, God, I wanted a baby for me. Because I knew what it would do for me. And how it would help me and ease my pain. But now, God, here's what I see. Now I want a baby for you. See, for you. In my pain, God, Hannah would say, you know what I want? I want you. God, you're the one who can close and open wounds. I've I've learned that. And you're powerful. And you know what I want a baby for? Because I want people to see how powerful you are. Everybody knows you can close wounds. Show them, God, that you can open wounds. Do it for you. You know what I want, God? I want to trust you in my pain. I don't want you to give me a baby for my pleasure. I want you to do it for your purposes. See? She's changed her whole perspective. God, what I want most in my pain is you. Is that true for you this morning? Emotionally? God, I I prayed about this so long, and maybe you have to say this morning, and what I've prayed and what I've asked you, I want you to do it for me. That's where I've been. But now, God, I want you to do it for you, for your name, for your glory, for your honor, God. And if you don't do it and you have other purposes, it's okay. Because if you do, God, I want you to know I'm giving my son to you. He'll be yours. And I won't have him, but I will have you. And that's really all I need. Let's pray. In just a moment, we're going to sing our closing little song. Give me one pure and holy passion. Just one pure and holy passion. I want you, God. See, when that becomes your perspective, it changes the way you experience your pain. It it changes the way that you express your prayers. It changes everything, doesn't it? And perhaps you're here this morning, you say, Pastor Walker, I have to be honest. Up until now, the things I've asked God for have been for me and what I could get out of them. But in my pain this morning, I want to cry out to God and say, God, not for me, not for me primarily, for you. For you.
with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just raise your hand here in the auditorium today and say, Pastor, that's what I'm learning this morning. It's not an easy pill to swallow, but that's what I want in my pain. I want it for God. Would you just lift your hand and I'll pray for you as we close. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. In the balcony here, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Father, you're not just concerned about all the names that are in the headlines. You're concerned about the people who raise their hand in this little church in Hamilton. You care about them. You know about their situation. You feel their pain. And you've already done something about it because you did it in Jesus Christ who took our pain for us so that we could have peace. Father, may they know the peace that comes through knowing you and making you the center of their lives. May they want what they want because they want you more than anything else. And we'll thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.